News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Now, are you one of those people who can remember your dreams vividly when you wake up? Or maybe you're one of those people who has the same dream, a variation of it, over and over well, it turns out you're not alone. There are very similar themes when it comes to our dreams. And new research has taken a look at what that means when you compare people's dreams all over the world. And yes, there is a most common dream. So let's find out what it is. Dr. Deirdre Barrett joins us now, author of the Committee of Sleep and Pandemic Dreams. Thank you very much for joining us. Hi, nice to be here. Dream research sounds fascinating. Your job must be great. Uh, yes, I, I, I love I, I love it. it. Just talking to people about their dreams all day and reading dreams is exactly what I love to do. So what is it about us, like with the similarity of our dreams, what does that tell us about the kinds of worries that we have? Um, well, I looked at the, I looked at the um, study that uh, one of your people directed me to, and it's done by a real estate company. And um, even though they say it's about what are the common dreams, it's not at all what is found in psychology research. Uh, they did something very interestingly different in that they looked at what people Google the meaning of what does this dream mean? What do people ask that about the most? And that actually turns up some of the very unusual dreams. So I can both tell you what the actually common dreams are, or we can talk about the ones in the study, which are kind of the ones that make people scratch their head and go to Google. Yeah. Uh, like snakes came up first in their survey, and snakes are in way under 1% of dreams. This only. is what I was wondering, because they said snakes, that, that was the number one dream that people were searching for. Like, yeah, what does it mean when I dream about said, snakes? I haven't dreamed about a snake I've never in dreamed about a snake. years. Yeah. I've never dreamed about a snake. Exactly. Well, again, it's done, it's done by a real estate company. Um, haven't looked at any, you know, psycho normally when we want to know what the most common dreams are, we either collect vast numbers of people's dreams. And that's easier to do now that there are apps that record dreams for people. They they upload them into the web so we can get tens of thousands of dreams. Whereas we used to like be asking college students to write down dreams and, you know, get right. a collection of five hundred would have been good. So, so one thing is common if you actually read and score the content of actual dreams. And you get fairly similar results if you hand out surveys. How often do you dream about X? That, that's, this starts a little because people recall the more memorable things disproportionately on those. But this is actually what do people type into Google? What does dreaming about a snake mean? And it's kind of obvious that you are much less likely to type in what does it mean if I dream about my sister? What does it mean if I dream about my boss yelling at me? Those are kind of things where we intuitively probably have a sense and we may be sort of, hmm, why right now? Right. But because we see so few snakes in most people's Well, lives. what I wonder is though, clearly quite a few people were worrying about why was I dreaming about a snake because they still type that into Google though, right? So if, Exactly, if, but, but again, mean? it's just, um, I mean, it means that, that these categories in this survey are the ones people puzzle about the most. Snakes, death, teeth, um, 
that, that, that people wonder. I think they may be symbols of some something rather than immediately connect them to things going on in their, right. in their but, lives. But let me ask you about the number four one, which was falling, which I think from every people that I've talked to is that's a very common dream. Do you come across that? Yes, although there are two things going on with that. Some people are really having a dream of falling where it's a, it's a narrative like any other. You know, our dreams usually have some visual imagery. They have a bit of a plot, even if it's a goofy plot. They don't happen until deeper into the night. And so some people actually have one of those narrative stories and at some point they fall. But the other thing that lots of people mean when they say that is that just as you're falling asleep, you're your center of balance goes kind of crazy and is is showing all kinds of motion that's not actually happening to your body. And if that starts just before you completely lose consciousness, lots of people startle awake within just the first minute of going to sleep, feeling like they're falling, and there's no... There's no visual imagery about it. There's no plot. There's just a sensation of falling. And I wouldn't really call that a dream, but I think that's a lot of the quote dreams about that are just that, um, just sensing your, your right. balance shutting off. So from your the research night. then, Dr. Barrett, what are the most common dreams that people have? Um, the most common dreams are social interactions. Um, there, the most typical dream has a couple other people in it, um, and about half the time you're doing something friendly with them, and about half the time um, there's there's something unpleasant, unfriendly, aggressive going on. Uh, we we dream about our social interactions more more than anything else. Um, but we do wonder about it more when we dream about rare things like some of these elements. But um, you definitely don't want to say, you know, one particular thing means X. I mean, even with snakes, that the best guess is that it's something unpleasant or threatening because the average person doesn't like like snakes, and we seem to have a little bit of instinctive fear. But on the other hand, there are kids that want to pet snake and love snakes and are fascinated by snakes. And I'm sure my herpetologist friend, if he dreams about snakes, you know, it's a very different, really yes. positive, <laughs> you know, dream, and he might identify them with them much more than we do. So good dream interpretation is about asking the person to get at their own symbols, like dogs appears about halfway down this this list, and dogs are much more common in dreams than than snakes. But they're they're a great example of one that can easily go in all directions. And and you want to ask somebody, just tell me what a dog is. I mean, you can say what are your associations to dogs, but often it's the most helpful to just say, pretend I'm from another planet. Tell me what a dog is. And one person will say, oh, they're these cute little things that we have as pets. They're almost like our children. We have to take care of them. And the next person will say, they're these big animals with sharp teeth. And I was bitten badly by a dog when I was 12 years old. I still have scar on my leg from that. And the third person will say, they're man's best friend. They are more loyal to you than any human would ever be. This is so... 
you just hear three completely different metaphors about what a dog would mean to each of those dreamers. That is so interesting. Listen, Dr. Barrett, thanks for your time this morning. Okay, take care. Appreciate that. Dr. Deirdre Barrett is the author of The Committee of Sleep and Pandemic Dreams, talking about the commonality of our dreams. Now, if you've had a recurring dream, I feel like so many people have, right? A similar dream that you've been having for on and on off for years. Would love to hear about it. Simi at cknw.com. Mine are generally work-related. Not making it in on time, you know, when the red light turns on, that kind of thing. What about you? You can email me or call or text our buzz line 604-331-2899. This is Mornings with Simi. It sure would seem like grocery stores are, you know, having an interesting time lately. Some of them are struggling with price increases, and yet they're also making good profits. At least some of those large chains are. And customers are not necessarily impressed with what they are seeing. So it was interesting when one of Canada's largest grocery store companies, that would be Loblaws, decided to do away with their price freeze on some grocery products, which they had advertised pretty heavily a few months back. And then they decided to use social media to defend themselves. Pretty sure that didn't work out the way they had intended, which brings up the question, what did they think was going to happen? Well, let's talk more about that this morning. David Soberman is with us, a professor of marketing at the University of Toronto's Rotman School of Management. David, thanks for being here. My pleasure. This is certainly an interesting marketing technique that Loblaws is trying. What do you make of this situation? Well, um, I think there's a bit of a catch-22 with promising a price freeze. Obviously, it's something which is very appealing to people in times of inflation, and that's why I think Loblaws did it, to try to increase store traffic. But the catch-22 part of it is that eventually you have to stop the freeze because uh, the prices that your suppliers are charging you are going up. And you need to make sure that your prices are higher than the costs that you're actually paying to put the products on the shelf. So they knew that this was going to come to an end. It was inevitable. And, of course, you're then going to get a lot of blowback from customers who um, may have gotten used to the prices being steady over the last couple of months. Right. And so I've never seen something quite like this before with the way they are really aggressively defending themselves on social media, in particular Twitter. Have you? No, it's quite interesting. I think they're trying to respond uh, to uh, concerns that people are raising in social media and trying to explain why they are having to increase prices. But, I mean, customers are probably less interested in all the explanations and logic for what Loblaws is doing. People basically just want lower prices. And so they're going to be frustrated in a way, no matter what Loblaws says in their responses. So what would have been a better way to approach this? What do you think they should have done? Well, it's interesting. I'm not sure that we should sort of question what they've done. Um, If what they were able to do by having the freeze and having announced it and made a lot of noise, if this led to them having increased levels of store traffic, then the fact that they're uh, facing some blowback now may not be enough to suggest that it wasn't a good strategy. But I think only when we actually are able to see the retail numbers for December and January to see whether Loblaws has captured some share from its competitors, will we be able to assess whether this is a good idea or not? So you're saying that maybe they knew that perhaps this wasn't the big driver in their stores than they thought it was going to be? 
It's hard to say. As I said before, they've actually made comments, and I've seen these in the press in the last 24 hours, that they felt the effect of the price freeze was very positive. Um, And we've got to remember, too, that Loblaws is quite innovative. I mean, they are very famous for having one of the very best quality equivalent brands, which we all know as President's Choice. On top of that, they've got one of the very best loyalty programs in retailing in Canada, uh, the PC Optimum Plus. And so with those things um, in their arsenal, if you can get people to come into the store and they become interested and they like what they see, and that was that person was a regular shopper prior to the price freeze at Metro's or Sobeys or Safeway, then guess what? That means your strategy actually had a positive effect. But typically, we don't get the what I would call the uh, summary of the effect until sometime this month, because usually retailing figures take some time to compile. Interesting. Uh, thank you so much for your time this morning. It was my pleasure. That's David Silberman, Professor of Marketing at the University of Toronto's Rotten School of Management, talking about the, the, the technique that Loblaws is using right now, essentially defending themselves on social media, kind of getting into arguments with customers who are mad that they have removed their price freeze uh, that they had advertised so heavily last fall. If there's one thing we know, it's the prices at the grocery store, right? If you're in charge of that and doing the grocery shopping, you know when something goes up. And they're gambling, I guess, that, you know what, they can make Canadian consumers kind of forget about that. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, it may seem like this is a great time to be in the childcare industry because of all the attention that's being paid to it right now. But the reality is much more complicated than that. There are issues on all sides, from paying workers an attractive wage to finding workers to having enough spaces. I mean, you name it. So we've been trying to get at all sides of this. We've heard from parents who are struggling with this. We've heard from, you know, the government saying they're doing the best that they can. We're also talking as well to child care providers. And that's our next guest, actually. Alexandra Carnia was with us, the founder and CEO of Productivity Child Care Academy. Alexandra, thanks for being here. Hi, thanks so much for having me. First of all, tell me about your business. Like, how big is it? Um, So we currently have just over 130 spots. We have two locations that we have right now. Um, And we actually have a unique model. So we actually have co-working upstairs and childcare downstairs. So people can rent flexible office space upstairs and then have their child downstairs as well. Okay. And how busy are you? Like, what's your wait list like? Oh, my goodness. Our wait list has, we've been full since before we opened. So as soon as I said that there was a new childcare option coming to our city, we have been waitlisted from day one. Um, To date, we have about 200 people actively on our wait list and we haven't even been open a year. Um, And we also acquired another centre who had a 600 person plus wait list. So you can see that it's a little bit insane. It does sound insane. And is there a lot of like, how would you describe the childcare industry right now with everything that is going on? Oh my goodness, it's such an interesting time. And like you mentioned, it's interesting for parents. Um, I myself am a parent and I, you know, obviously enjoy reduced fees, but there's so many other angles. And especially for providers, I think it's a bit of a scary time right now because with this level of government involvement that we're seeing, um, for example, now you can only increase your fees 3% a year. Um, It's scary to try and make ends meet as things continue to climb with costs. Okay, so tell me about that then. So what do you do? What is your business model? 
So our business model from day one has been set out to pay educators a living wage. So a lot of educators are only paid, you know, 19 to $22 an hour. Um, and there's a lot of centers in our city specifically, and I'm sure across the province, that they're actually having to close rooms of these childcare spots that people so desperately need because they can't find educators. So from day one, we said, okay, we need to change how this is done, and we're actually paying that living wage. Um, So we're able to attract and retain more employees, but that does cost us more as a business to our bottom line, for sure. Well, it's a double-edged sword, isn't it, though? Like, you need the attention and help from the government because finally they're paying attention to child care, but then it brings all these other issues, too. It totally does. And, and it's I don't know what the right answer is, but it's, it's definitely hard to be a private business to try and have this government level of involvement. And I think that there might be some misconception that, you know, we're getting this government funding now, so everything should be fine. But they're not matching our operating costs with our rates that we're able to charge. Also, there's different rates that you can charge depending on what area that you're in in the province. So, for example downtown Vancouver can charge a lot more than what we can charge, particularly in Kelowna, um, even though we know costs are climbing regardless of where you live. And how are parents dealing with that? Because do they have a certain set expectation as well, Alexandra, and then it turns out that, well, no, they might have to pay a little bit more? Totally. And I think that's also the hard part of having this government involvement is that there's almost like an entitlement that, you know, we're owed these spots, but these are still private businesses as well that are operating and trying to make ends meet. And that's what we really had to do and get creative with is how can we offer more outside of our basic fees? Um, So one thing that we do at our center is extended hours and weekends. So we're open until nine and then we're also open on Saturdays for parents. Um, And then also the co-working aspect. So we're trying to find ways that we don't have to rely on the government income 100% because I think right now there's it's not a great time to get into the childcare business, but yet we desperately need more people to do so because we have no spots available for the kids that we're trying to already serve. Right. And you're saying like, you know, you're paying up to $30 an hour. Well, that's, I mean, you know, five years ago, that would have been unheard of to play that in the childcare industry. Totally. But, you know, we're seeing the benefits of that because not only do we not have to close programs, like we're giving parents that consistency because they can rely on their educators actually coming to work and staying with us. So we actually have a waiting list of staff, which is an amazing position to be in, um, but it does come at a cost. Okay. So what would you like parents to really know about this whole situation? Yeah, I think there has to be some empathy towards providers and really understand that, you know, we're we're businesses, we're not government, we're not just solely relied on government funding. And we also have to be realistic with, you know, what we're charging in terms of what things actually cost. So, you know, saying with the government, for example, that we can only increase 3% a year now on our base fees, um, we all know inflation is so much higher than that. Like the cost of food, the cost of rent, the cost of staff, it just all adds up. So I think there has to be some empathy on all sides. It's so interesting, Alexander, the way you say that, because you're saying you kept saying we're a business. Maybe that's the trouble is that some people have trouble seeing childcare as a business. Yes, and I think so. And I think, you know, I, I have only been in the childcare business for less than a year now, so it's definitely opened my eyes. I know lots of parents are like, I'm just going to open my own daycare. And that that's where I was too uh, about a year ago. And it's really been interesting to be in the business and see how it works. And really the lack of collaboration between um, government, other centers and families. And so trying to find that balance of running a business, being a great service provider, but then also being able to advocate for what we need on the childcare side to the government is very unique. Okay. And so what do you foresee for your business over the next year or two? Like, will you expand? Yeah, so we're actually about to open our third location by the end of this year in Kelowna, and then we're actually looking into a franchising model. Um, whether that stays specifically in Canada, not 
too sure. That's, I think, the thing with the $10 a day that's so uncertain for providers is how do we budget? How do we actually incentivize people to open businesses when we don't know what our funding is going to look like um, versus like the market like the states, perhaps, where, you know, there isn't a maternity leave. Um, We offer nursing rooms, for example, like in our centers. And so just looking at, you know, what that model looks like. But for sure, we definitely want to expand. And uh, whether that's in Kelowna or whether that's into more of BC or the states, we'll see. So it's still a bit optimistic, though, isn't it? Because it feels like no matter how many places you open, there will still be demand for what you're providing. There is definitely demand. And I think that's the one nice thing is that it is a safe business to be in. We don't have seasonality. We don't have to worry about, you know, um, you know, if it's winter, we have to make more sales. It's always stable um, in terms of numbers, but there's just never going to be enough spots at this rate to be able to service all the people that need care. So are you having to charge maybe some extra fees for some things that you weren't charging for before? Um, So we're kind of in a unique situation because we just opened in April 2022. And so we basically had structured our fees from day one that like the basic care would get you, you know, eight hours of childcare a day with our curriculum based programming. And then you can pay an optional fee, which is above and beyond. um, And that includes your meal programs that includes access to extended hours, like the evenings and the weekend care. And that's really been the difference and the game changer that allows us to be able to pay top dollar to be staff. We're in no means like a super profitable business. I think that's probably also a misconception. People probably think, oh, you're just raking in the money. (laughs) And there's a lot of costs associated with opening a center, um, whether that's insurance, like I said, food, staff, the list goes on and on. I'll bet. Well, thank you so much for uh, talking to us about it this morning. Yes, thanks so much for having me. It's been so interesting. Alexander Carnia, who's a founder and CEO of Productivity Childcare Academy, a big wait list as well, but it is so fascinating to hear, you know, childcare now being discussed as an industry or a business because that is what we are seeing happen out there. If you want to weigh in. This is Mornings with Simi. Now, I feel like we could all use some good news, right? Stories about cooperation and help as opposed to conflict. I think we all look for those. I know I do. Well, this next story really fits the bill on that. It has a Jewish group called Independent Jewish Voices in Vancouver teaming up with the BC Muslim Association all to help a 15-year-old Palestinian teenager, a teenager who arrived in Vancouver yesterday as a result of this cooperation. Right? We have to hear about this story. So joining us now is Shaket Hassan, who's the Social Services Director for the BC Muslim Association. Thank you for being here this morning. You're very welcome. Can you tell me a bit about Mohammed, 15 years old? Why is he so special? Mohammed brought our attention some years ago when uh, he was hit by a drone, an Israeli drone, while he was playing with his uh, uh, friends and relatives of the children on the beach and it was uh, some of them were killed and he survived through a lot of injuries in his body. He was moved by <clears throat> by group for medication in Israel and then in Cairo and then in Turkey and he suffered about, uh, went through about 22 uh, operations and then brought our attention by by this group, by the Jewish Lebanon group, and we were happy and willing to cooperate and bring uh, through the sponsorship agreement holder with the government to bring Muhammad here for further treatment, medical treatment. So, and as a meantime, giving an opportunity to this free country to educate and uh, plan his life as a normal being. 
Now, Shalkat, I think what people also really love about this story, though, is that it involved cooperation from different groups. Does that happen very often? Yes. Uh, we had lots of, whenever there is an accident or unfortunate things happened in Canada or around the world, the Jewish community as well as the Muslim community uh, get together, uh, condolences and support. And it had been doing very good. The faith is at all should not be a problem to anybody. But uh, people, some people are more uh, uh, extreme than others, but normally we have a very good relation. See, that's what people like to hear. So tell me, what's going to happen now for Mohammed? He's 15 years old. Uh, I know he's got big plans, right, of what he'd like to do now. Yes. Uh, Mohammed is here. He wants to go for further medical treatment and then uh, continue with his education that we were uh, unavailable and able to continue through his uh, injuries. But now he has the opportunity to attend and go further for his education. Uh, In the meantime, uh, the Jewish community uh, kindly collected enough resources for Muhammad to, to live and we are ready to cooperate with them all the way. Oh, that is so lovely to hear. Then how often are you able to do this, to bring someone here that you see? Is, is, it, is it easy to do this, or do you have to have a special case like Mohammed? Well, you know uh, the story of Hassan Kuntar. Of course, yes. We had him on the show the other day. Yeah, yeah we, we also brought him here. We did that at our organization. So we tried to help those in need, especially uh, we help a lot of uh, widows with their children. Uh, who had no uh, other way to survive. So we are a humanitarian organization and religious organization trying to help uh, through the government system of a private sponsorship agreement holder, and we are happy to do that. Now, Shalkat, what would you like people to know here? I mean, I I feel sometimes that people need to be reminded that there are good things that are happening out there in the world. Yes, I wish if everybody is uh, aware of the disadvantage that the other people are looking uh, to improve their lives. And we have the capacity and the privilege to help. And we should not hesitate at all. We should help because uh, at the end of the line, we are a human being and we are supposed to support each other whenever is that possible. Myself, myself as a Palestinian who became the bride from, from his home in 1948. I have lots of Jewish friends. I have lots of Jewish colleagues who I love them so much, and we grew together. We love as a human being. It's not because my faith is different than the others. No. Right. Well, I so, love that. Thank you, you so much for, yeah, thank you so much for joining us this morning. I appreciate that. You're very welcome. It's a lovely story. That is Shaqat Hassan, who's the Social Services Director for the BC Muslim Association. They teamed up with a group called Independent Jewish Voices in Vancouver to help bring a 15-year-old boy to Vancouver. He arrived yesterday. Mohammed and his cousin were hit by a drone strike. They were playing outdoors in the Gaza area there. His cousin died. And he had severe injuries and he had 22 surgeries that he had to undergo in different countries trying to get help. So he continues to have these ongoing health issues and he wasn't able to get just the absolute right kind of medical treatment. So these two groups 
teamed up, not a, like a cooperation that you often hear of, which is why I love the story so much. They teamed up and they brought him to Vancouver and this is where he will continue. He wants to study engineering and he wants to just continue his education and get healthy. And it's just so lovely to hear a great story like that in this day and age, isn't it? This is Mornings with Simi. We can talk about improving Granville Street, and we have talked about it over and over again over the years, but nothing ever really seems to change. But this week, we saw a little bit of a different approach to this at Vancouver City Council, where Council was a bit more aggressive in saying it is time for change. So let's talk about what kind of a difference this could actually mean. Joining us now is Vancouver City Councillor Sarah Kirby-Young. Thanks for being here. Good morning, Timmy. Now, let's talk about what happened at this council meeting here. Clearly, council decided that, you know what, we want to do more than what staff are recommending. How did that happen? Yeah, that's, um, I mean, you nailed it. Uh, We had a Granville Street planning program that staff brought forward, a proposed 18-month study um, around how the Granville Street Entertainment District could be, the zoning could be modernized and how it could be sort of updated. Um, And council felt that uh, it wasn't bold enough. And so kind of gave staff the license to really up the ante and so said move forward with new hotel projects now. We desperately need hotels in the city. We have a huge shortage of hotel rooms, um, which is constraining our tourism sector. Um, And we know we need those. It fits with the vision of the street. Um, Bring forward projects to public hearing like 800 Granville, which proposes new office um, above the historic section of 800 Granville where the Commodore Ballroom is and revitalization of that sort of cultural gem um, and keep this process moving. Uh, We also called for a bolder vision for a public space. Um, Look at the response to the shipyards in North Vancouver and said, this is more than just tweaking and upgrading the experience for pedestrians. This is about really whether or not we can create a destination public space as well. How aggressive do you think the city needs to be to make something happen here? Because it feels like we've talked about this so many times. Um, I think we need to be aggressive and we need to be bold. Granville Street has literally been uh, dying and atrophying uh, during the pandemic. Obviously, downtown was hard hit, but no area more than Granville Street. It saw the highest percentage of vacancies for retail um, across the city of Vancouver. And some of that persists. And um, it's got such an incredible history. Everybody has memories of spending weekends there, going to movies, going to concerts, um, just, you know, it was sort of a rite of passage of growing up in Vancouver. Um, And uh, I think we need one sort of vital and exciting entertainment district. And Granville Street is just like we have one gas town. We have one Granville Street. Okay, so then how would this look? You're talking about bringing hotels there, but how quickly can some of this work get done? Well, there are some um, uh, applicants that are interested in building new hotel projects. They're very difficult to build in the city, just like rental housing. Um, The economics are tricky there. Um, But we also know that a big part of the issue was the amount of time that it takes. We had one speaker come to council and we said, if we didn't update these staff recommendations and allow hotels now, what are you looking at? And he said, probably a minimum of seven years to get a hotel built. Well, we're hosting FIFA in 2026, the largest sporting event in the world. So it didn't make sense for us to wait two years for a planning process and before somebody could even apply. Um, because we know we need that. And we know that with um, a vision for a district that is primarily commercial and entertainment, the hotel is a perfect use for it. Um, not everybody wants to live alongside. It's not necessarily where you want to put a lot of housing, um, but it is a great place to have a supportive tourism sector. Right. So are we saying then that I know previously there had been some discussion about putting residential housing on Granville Street. Are we saying that, no, no, that's that's not the way to go? 
Well, the study area is a very defined area, five blocks from Robson to Drake Street, um, and it does contemplate limited rental housing, but um, it really does recognize that the primary function of this area is economic, cultural um, development, and so contemplates daytime uses like office that would bring customers and needed life and energy into the street during the day, and then the additional cultural and entertainment uses. Okay, so what are the next steps here? Uh, well, we will hope we'll see. We should see that uh, 800 Gravel Street project moving forward for public input, uh, per the process, and then to public hearing. Uh, this clears the way for hotels to bring their applications forward. We'll see the planning process underway. Um, and then the other thing that we also um, gave staff license to do was to look at potentially taking working with TransLink and coming back to us to give, give us a skinny on the pros and cons of taking buses off of Granville Street and relocating to adjacent streets so that that would clear the way to create a signature destination public space. Wow, that would be a very big change. So you're talking about completely kind of pedestrianizing that street. We are talking about looking at the possibility. We didn't say um, 100% will take the vehicles off. We said come back and tell us the pros and cons and the considerations. But I think there's a real will and a real appetite to do that. You look at the um, Art Gallery Plaza uh, that was uh, done between on Robson on the south side of the art gallery. That's an incredibly well-used public space. We have very little large public spaces downtown, and our city is increasingly um, densifying, and so we need to give people spaces just to spread out and just to be and enjoy the city. And do you think if we, I guess the idea, if you build it, people will come? Because certainly we're not seeing enough of that, I think, in downtown Vancouver. I think if you if you capitalize it, if you invest in it, and if you do it right, absolutely, people will come. And um, there's some exciting things I think in our future. We're working on the redevelopment of the PE Amphitheater um, that will uh, is pushing forward and will complete over the next few years. That's going to be incredibly exciting. The ability to see an outdoor concert, everybody remembers and, and knows and loves that with that view of the North Shore Mountains is incredible. But again, we need an upgraded facility there. So I think that will be incredibly popular. And I think Granville Street could be too if we keep the political will up and we're willing to invest in it. Okay, so you talked about like how long it would potentially take to build some hotels. Are you hoping that this will help fast track that? Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly what it said is uh, that hotels um, get to come to the front of the line because we have such a dire need for those rooms. And um, hotels becomes exactly like housing stock is that when you have so few of them, it becomes really expensive to visit. So only people with a lot of means can do that, just like it's your know, rents become so expensive. Um, and that's not the kind of tourism industry that you want. Um, it also means that it puts pressure. You see people trying to Airbnb more or work around the rules because they don't have anywhere to stay. Um, and it's really important. I remember back in the day when I was working at Destination Vancouver, um, and we were putting the 2010 Olympic Games bid together, how important it was to have that hotel stock to attract large events. Um, and in fact, the Olympics required you to actually sign a contract. Uh, all the hotels had to commit their inventory to host the Games. So we will lose our opportunity to host things like FIFA um, and other events in the future if we don't increase our hotels. Right. Okay. Do you think this is also a signal to staff as well about, hey, listen, we need to do things faster here? Absolutely. Yeah. I, I think uh, staff are, we have some great staff um, at the city, but they, you know, it's their job to follow the regulations and the zoning policies and the processes that we have in place. And I think this was council saying very clearly to staff, you have our support um, and our weight behind you to step out of the box when we have some really phenomenal projects that, that would deliver for the city. Um, like the revitalization of 800 Granville, um, and to move forward when we need it. All right, we'll see what happens. Thank you so much.
Thanks. Have a great morning. You too. That is Sarah Kirby Young, Vancouver City Councillor for ABC, talking about the push to revitalize Granville Street. Now, listen, I would love to see this because we've talked about it forever. And yeah, it needs some help. It It is that kind of natural congregating place in the city that people do go to. And maybe that's because of all the buses that go up and down it. And it's just, you know, that's where people go. It's very busy. But is it lively? Is it, you know, I know the nightclubs, if you come out after the nightclubs close, yeah, it's pretty lively. But what about during the day? And that is the question. Is it possible? Do you think they should turn it into one whole big pedestrian zone? Do you think that would help? Yeah, let me know. Simi at cknw.com. What do you think should happen to Granville Street to make it uh, a more of a destination place for people? This is Mornings with Simi. Now, I asked you to send me your stories about family doctors. Like, do you have one? Or maybe you've lost hope of getting one. And that's a pretty strong word to say that you've lost hope. But Norma wrote me, and that's how Norma feels. Norma said, 78 years of age in Parksville and on the government list, a waiting list for a doctor for two years with no hope, says Norma. Last week, Comox Courtney area lost another clinic with only one remaining. Parksville has no clinics and all we have is an urgent care that services a very limited few. No hope, says Norma. So I can understand why people are so incredibly frustrated and I can understand why people feel that maybe, just maybe, this new payment model might make a difference. At least that's what their hope is. So let's talk about that. It came into effect yesterday. Joining us now is Dr. Justine Spencer, who's president of the BC College of Family Physicians. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Dr. Spencer, what kind of a difference do you think this new payment model will make? Well, I feel really hopeful, and I hope um, British Columbians like Norma do as well. So what this new payment model promises to provide is more equitable payment for family doctors to recognize that value of that longitudinal relationship-based care that we provide and that British Columbians want and need. So what it does is pays for time spent with patients, but also accounts for all those other things we do that we don't get paid for and that is leading to doctors leaving their practice or not starting a practice. So things called indirect care. So checking labs, advocating for patients' referrals, talking to allied healthcare providers, um, and then most significantly, administrative and just sort of the the whole aspect of care that's leading to burnout. So we are really hopeful. So my organization and me personally, we're just feeling really hopeful and optimistic that this is the first step towards a more sustainable environment for family doctors and therefore, you know, get more family doctors, keep family doctors. Dr. Spencer, do you think that patients will be able to notice a difference if their doctor has signed up for this new payment situation? I think it really depends on the practice. I would say it's hard for me to speak for every single family doctor because we all have different ways of setting up our practice, different ways of practicing. Um, for the most part, I would say we're just getting paid for the work we already do. Um, and we're retaining and recruiting family doctors. That's really hopefully what British Columbians will see is that maybe they can get a family doctor. And if they have one, they're going to keep their family doctor. And maybe some doctors will also change their setup of their practice to have slightly longer appointments. I can't speak for all of them. Um, but And maybe, my, this is my, my secret hope, is that family doctors will be happier and will have better healthcare 
mental health care themselves. So maybe you'll have more positive interactions with your doctor. That I think, remains to be seen. Yeah, I think everybody would love to have a happy family doctor, right? Right? Happy family doctor, happy patients, every, yeah. everyone's happy. That makes a big difference. What do you think this will do, though, to help BC re- attract family physicians? I think this will be a really important first step in creating an environment that's sustainable for family doctors in BC. And previously, it wasn't seen to be sustainable. So doctors were often not setting up a practice, not coming here from other places. They were even leaving British Columbia to find a place that was set up in a way that would pay them better, have fewer burdens, lead to less burnout. So I think I think this is this is looking really promising to be fixing that. And will this will do you think this will improve health care for people too? You talked about longitudinal care. Uh, a lot of people don't know what that means. Maybe you can explain why that is a goal to strive for. Absolutely. This is this is my joy. This is why I go to work in the morning, is because I care about my patients. I know them over time. So longitudinal means me knowing knowing somebody over time. You know, I catch a baby see them when they're a baby and I see them when they're, well, I haven't been in practice long enough, but to see them when they're, when they're elderly and needing my help in different ways. And so meeting them where they are in their lifespan. And that leads to better care. We have good evidence. We have data to show that people who are connected to good primary care, in particular to a family doctor, actually have better health outcomes. Right. So that just means being able to build a relationship with your family doctor. And will this new payment model then, will that, will it reward family doctors for taking that extra time? It will pay them for taking time with patients as well as seeing more patients. So it's sort of a multimodal approach. And the long answer to your question is, is yes, they will actually be paid for spending time with you. So that, that relationship can be built. And it's also built over time. Right. What's it like for you in, in practice then, Dr. Spencer? Uh, how challenging is it? What, do people not understand just how much administration is involved here? I think that's a big part of it. Um, you know, when a patient comes in and they'll see me in my office, they don't see the work behind the scenes, um, the work that I do to prepare to see them, to keep up with medical literature, the work to advocate for them, doing referrals, talking to allied health about them. There's a lot that goes on behind the scenes to take care of somebody's health care. So I hope that part of this payment model is actually patients understanding that your doctor has a lot going on to take care of you and to take care of you well. Um, so this is, this is physician groups in combination with the government um, advocating for that and making it better for all of us. Is there more that can still be done? I mean, this is obviously one step. What else needs to be done? Absolutely. This is a first step. And um, it's not going to solve everything. Um, but it doesn't solve things like administrative burden. So what that translates to is paperwork. Um, and then other things like we don't have team-based care set up very well in this province. So your doctor should be working with other allied health professionals, nurses, nurse practitioners, social workers, dietitians, pharmacists, the list goes on. Um, so team-based care is going to be really important moving forward. And then, <clears throat> pardon me, and then protecting the mental health of doctors. This is also a first step there, but we have more to, to look at. 
to improve that. Is that, do you think, what has contributed to seeing clinic closures and and doctors perhaps retiring or maybe deciding that they want to cut back on their hours? It's, it's because they're exhausted. Yes, there's been incredible burnout and it's been worsened in the last two or three years with the pandemic. And it's just not sustainable the way family practice has been running in British Columbia. And I think this provides the hope that we need to stop that crisis. It's not going to be the whole fix, but it's really heading out of it. This is definitely the first step to making that better. All right. Well, Dr. Spencer, thank you so much for your time. Oh, thanks for talking to me today. This is Mornings with Simi. You need a family doctor and there is hope, there is optimism that this new payment model for family doctors in our province will help make that a reality. So let's talk about how this works. Joining us now is Adrian Dix, BC's Minister of Health. Thank you for being here. Great to be on the show. So what is so significant about this? What does this change? It changes uh, the way that we uh, pay family doctors and the, and the importance we give to family medicine. So it focuses payment in our new model, which we developed with the doctors themselves, on the direct patient care services provided, on indirect patient care services, for example, the doctors working afterwards to help you get a referral, the clinical administration done by doctors, and their clinical teaching, which is really important when we want to train new doctors, for example, oversee the work of resident doctors. It also focuses on the number of patient visits and the number of attached patients. It'll be good news for patients because uh, as we go through our rostering system on this and you are assigned, you get a family doctor, you can also apply into that model and get a family doctor. That'll be starting July 1st. And it's good for doctors. And we saw this in the 92% approval of the, of the master agreement. The professional had the master agreement with doctors, which is essentially their collective agreement with the government. Uh, and and uh, that was significant. We saw it yesterday with a very large number of doctors who've already joined the new model on its in its first hours. Okay, and you mentioned July 1st. There's a new rostering system. What is that? What does that mean? What it means is that as people join the new model, they will have um, to have a certain number of attached patients, and they're going to provide those names of attached patients centrally. So we'll know which doctors are able to take patients and not. So starting July 1st, you'll be able to apply. You go online and say, I need a family doctor. And we'll go through the process of referrals. And that's, uh, that's an important element for patients. But I think importantly as well, uh, this is uh, much more appealing to younger doctors. We need people, to g- and it gives priority to family medicine in the community. So, so it was younger doctors who were more and more uh, rejecting the fee-for-service model for having to essentially run businesses as well as be doctors. They want to practice medicine. So this allows them to do it more. It reduces also the paperwork of doctors. So they're doing more, uh, more medicine and less paperwork, which I think is good news for everybody. Uh, what we've seen over the last few months, for example, in our new-to-practice contracts, which we put in, in in front of this in order to attract this most recent year of resident doctors, an unprecedented joining in our new-to-practice contracts for what's called longitudinal family practice or basically being a family doctor in the community. 104 new doctors, we usually get 20 or 30. So all of this is good news. We've got work to do, and it's a new and a dramatic change. But people have been saying for decades that the fee-for-service model wasn't working for doctors, wasn't working for patients. Well, this is a, this is a significant change in, the, in the, that model, and it's one that doctors, of course, can choose to accept or not accept, but a lot of them are going to be accepting. 
So we were talking with the BC College of Family Physicians about that because I thought, is this going to mean that we will get more doctors? And do you think it will? I think it will. I think what we've heard, this is from listening to uh, doctors, especially younger doctors. What was happening is we were seeing an increase. For example, since I've been Minister of Health, we've had 600 more uh, family doctors, but they're working in all kinds of it, all kinds of choices to, to, as to what they're going to do. And they were increasingly not liking family medicine, partly because of remuneration questions, and we fixed that in the agreement. And secondly, because uh, the fee-for-service model really forces them to become small business people in a way that uh, didn't work for them. So both of those issues were addressed significantly. So I think what this does is it makes family medicine in the community more attractive for doctors. And we've seen some evidence of that already, and we're hoping to see more in the coming months. Does that mean you hope to attract doctors from other provinces? Well, we're also, of course, working to make it easier for internationally educated doctors to work in B.C. The Premier announced those changes just recently. I think this agreement makes us certainly competitive with all the other provinces. I think family doctors, Dr. Fernandez and others would tell you, frankly, that uh, we weren't as competitive with other provinces before. So this makes us competitive with other provinces. I think the reason BC attracts people is because this is the best place in the country, maybe the best place in the world to live. And so, uh, and so we're going to continue to attract people from every part of Canada. And we have. We, I think, had a record year in 2021. But we want every province to have protected health care system. So the purpose of this isn't to attract from other provinces. We're training more doctors here. We've added spaces to the UBC Medical School. We're starting an SFU Medical School. We have new pathways for internationally educated doctors. And this model says that family medicine is a, is a critically important thing. It's a priority for people. It should be a priority for the medical community. And we're, we're showing with this model how important we see it make it. Okay, you talked about the rostering system then in July. Will that also help identify perhaps areas of the province where the waiting list is way longer than elsewhere? I I think uh, we know some of that now, but it will help people. But it it also treats people seeking a doctor or a nurse practitioner or team-based care as individuals, right? And so right now we get information from national surveys as people without a family doctor. This treats people as individuals in the system. It gives them a place specifically to go, for example, if their family doctor retires. This, there's a process to go through. And it helps us available, uh, identify where there are spaces and where there's more demand. Absolutely. I think we have that sense. Like in some communities, uh, the loss of one or two doctors can have a dramatic effect because there may only be four or five doctors in the community. Right? And so uh, that continues to be an issue. And that's why we've also, as you'll note it, then Premier Eby announced this, tripled the number of people of doctors coming in in our practice ready assessment program, which we have focused on rural BC in the past and will continue to do in the future. Do you think patients will notice a difference? Like a, a fee payment model, we think, okay, that's great for doctors, but what will it mean that for patients will actually notice? Well, it gives priority to family medicine. I think family doctors said that um, we were both remunerating and rewarding other work in public health care. So this gives priority to that and patients will benefit from that. It also, with a rostering system, gives them agency that they haven't had before, gives them a sense of control over, um, over the situation. There's a place to go. You don't lose your family doctor and they're just calling around uh, without really direction. That's where, you, uh, that's where you're going to go. That's not exactly how it is now, but it's the feeling that some people have. So I think this is going to be very good for patients. And it's going to be very good for patients as well with chronic diseases because now 
currently the, the all of the doctors, and this is all of our family doctors who give special attention with, to people with concurrent needs. You know, just as an example, mm-hmm. I have type 1 diabetes, but if I go in for, say, a respiratory illness, well, that's two problems, right? And, uh, and for people in those circumstances, uh, a doctor has to be flexible to be able to provide them with the care they need. So for those patients as well, it will have real benefits. I think this is one of several measures. It's not the sole thing we're taking. We're training more doctors, new pathways to internationally educated doctors, building out team-based care in communities. We have 60 primary care networks in BC, obviously 30 urgent and primary care centers, which support as well and provide team-based care in communities. We we don't need to just do one thing. We need to do a number of things so the healthcare system better responds to people's needs, especially now as we are living the third year, I guess, or almost ending the third year of the COVID-19 pandemic. Very true. Uh, Thank you so much for your time. Hey, anytime. Take care. Eh? Appreciate that. You too. Adrian Dix, BC's Minister of Health, talking about these new changes, the fee payment model for doctors. As more and more doctors sign on to this, it will mean that they are being reimbursed differently for how they treat you, essentially. They can spend more time with you. It's a recognition of more complicated care. If you're a patient who says, I've got three things I need to talk about, I don't want to make three appointments. These are the efforts that are being made to address that. But people are still very discouraged about this too, right? Like Paula wrote me to say, I've been fortunate enough to have a family doctor for the last 23 years. My daughter is also now her patient. I'm dreading the day she retires though, Paula says. But the concern is when you have something that needs to be addressed like an ear infection, says Paula, or something that you need to see a doctor for within 24 to 48 hours, And you're not able to do that. We call, get an appointment for three weeks. How is that helpful to the system, Paula says? What is the option? She said, my daughter needed to get antibiotics before leaving on a trip. We called every clinic in a 25-kilometer radius of our home, and there was not a single space available for her. Ended up using telehealth, speaking to a doctor via text and having a prescription sent to a pharmacy. She said, that's our health care now. Very, very concerning, she said. And I have a family doctor. Paula, you just hit the nail on the head. That's it right there. I have the same problem too, right? Like, what is the point? If, I'm, if I have an infection or something, what's the point of trying to make an appointment? Because it'll probably be gone in the three weeks or you know two weeks it's going to take me to get in to see the doctor. And that is the problem, that part of the system still that needs to be addressed.